0: Welcome to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio, which can be found at uicradio.org or on the Radio FX app. I'm Professor Floros, and today in the classroom, I welcome Professor E.J. Fagan to talk about voting rights in America. So let's get started in the Politics Classroom, recorded on August 21st, 2021. Welcome to the first episode of The Politics Classroom in 2021. My COVID hiatus is over, and I'm thrilled to welcome to the classroom E.J. Fagan, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. E.J. received his bachelor's degree in political science from Providence College, a Master of Public Policy from George Mason University, and a PhD in political science from the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Fagan teaches classes on American politics and his research focuses on political parties and interest groups. Professor Fagan, thank you for being my first guest of this year, and welcome to the classroom.
1: Thanks, Kate, for having me on.
0: Okay, so Professor Fagan is the newest faculty member in the Department of Political Science. He began in the department for the fall 2020 semester, and we were in the middle of a COVID lockdown. So... I just wanted to talk to you briefly about what that was like to move from Texas to a new city in order to start a new job where you couldn't really interact with your colleagues easily and your students were not in front of you.
1: It was a little weird. Uh, You know, it, uh, look, I'm very fortunate that I got to start the job of my dreams, you know, regardless of whenever I got to start it. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who had had a worse pandemic than me. They had to go and interact with people every day, put their lives in danger, and I got to, you know, sit on my butt in a uh, in a chair and, and and teach classes. the The moving was the hardest part, right? We were living in Arizona temporarily at the time during the pandemic because we had a tiny little apartment in Austin, Texas, and so we moved into my parents' house uh, to, try to, uh, to try to to try to wait out the, the pandemic. So we had to find an apartment sight unseen. You know, we couldn't do a house hunting trip. You know, on the way uh, on the way to uh, uh, here in Chicago. Moved into a neighborhood that maybe I wouldn't have moved into had I seen it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then kind of decided, we, you know, we we bought a place that was going to be nice and close to campus, so I could commute to campus early, and that didn't work out. You uh, bought I, a place? No, I'm sorry, we, we, we didn't buy a place. We, we oh, rented a place. rented, okay. We, we, we leased a place r- right, uh, right when we got there. And uh, so that was a little tough. You know, the other teaching wasn't that hard. I, uh, I had the advantage of not having to unlearn how to teach in person. So I got to learn how to teach online right away, and so all of my courses I designed from the start to be online. Uh, all of my, you know, my pedagogy I designed from the, from the start to be online. And uh, now, now what? Now that we're in person, now it's the opposite. Now I'm now I'm unlearning how to teach online, and I'm learning how to teach in person. But you know, I'm I'm actually kind of happy with some of the stuff that we did. When I'm, I'm, I decided not to have you know big formal exams. Sitting in person, doing multiple choice stuff. Students are writing. I was really impressed by the quality of writing that they did, that they did last uh, last year. And so now that we're back in person, I'm keeping that. I want students to write a ton, and uh, you know, I feel bad for my TAs. We're gonna have to grade a lot of it. But uh, I, I think I think it will be a good experience for everybody. So all told, you know, I think I, 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 it's going well. I had a good yeah. The the pandemic was awful last year, but I got married last year. You know, I started the, the job of my dreams, and, and it's still going good. this year.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. I guess I, I didn't think about the fact that you didn't have to unlearn a way you, right. So I've been, I've been teaching since 2008 and, you know, going online was a very big challenge, especially with the big classes. I didn't realize how much I relied on the body language and facial Mm. expressions to, to whether students were with me or not. And, yeah. So that was that was definitely challenging. challenge. Well, good. The new semester is starting. And are you, are you teaching all your classes in person?
1: We're all in person. I got two 45-person uh, lectures in person th- uh, this semester. And at uh, 8 a.m. Monday morning, we're, uh, we're, we're starting off. So I'm excited for that. Wow. <laughs> I have one remote...
0: 146 person intro to international relations and a 30 person one day a week movie class. So it's there like night and day from each other. Anyhow. Okay. Well, great. So welcome a year later to UIC. We're glad to have you in the department. And since you are an experienced podcaster in your own right, do you want to plug
1: your your podcast Sure, all, all the wonderful baseball fans here in the city of Chicago will love the Bronx Beat podcast, the best podcast in the world about the New York Yankees. Uh, you can find it wherever podcasts are, are, are. sold. We just recorded uh, just our 300th episode. So we're, uh, we're pretty pretty deep into this podcast, and uh, we're going to do 300 more.
0: Fantastic. I know nothing about the Yankees, so I was going to offer to help out Professor Fagan with his podcast, but I would not be useful. So, Never fight a
1: war. I'll, I'll bring you on.
0: Thank you. I mean, maybe we could talk about crosstown rivalries in the in a civil war context. I, I'm not sure. So, what I wanted to talk about today is voting rights. You know, we had a presidential election last year. We had some controversy about how the election went, even though there's no evidence that there was anything wrong with the election. And we've seen over this uh, spring and summer all of these efforts in various states to Some people would suggest uh, suppress the vote, others to ensure the integrity of the elections. And so first I wanted to ask one kind of basic question about what role the states have in election law versus what role does the federal government play? Because we're talking, I mean, we're eventually going to talk about uh, voting issues at the federal level, but I want to start in the states. But why don't we have a you know, voting law that everybody has the same requirements? Yeah,
1: you know, it's a great question. The, there, there's um, a couple of ways to answer that. The first is, is that the states do the vast majority of the actual you know, bait and tackle or block and tackling of, of an elections administration, right? They set up voting machines. They, they hire people to run those voting machines. They set up voting sites. They set up a lot of the basic rules around voting. Um, the federal government has a very a fairly small role in the actual administration of elections. The Constitution does allow Congress to have substantial regulation of federal elections, not a ton, um, and, and in practice, there's only been a few kind of specific kinds of cases where uh, the Constitution, you know, uh, w- where the, the federal government, where Congress has passed laws to help administer local elections, mostly around the Voting Rights Act and its renewals, um, which are in response to the, to, to civil rights violations. But besides that, you know, there's no federal right to vote. The, 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 federal, the, the, the US constitution was designed at a period of time when almost no, uh, no one in the population was allowed to vote. White male landowners are the ones who, um, who were allowed to vote in the beginning. And that franchise was slowly expanded over time. It wasn't until almost 30 years uh, into our constitution that you actually had wide, you know, uh, a widespread white male Enfranchisement, let alone uh, everybody else in society. Women weren't, gi- weren't given the right to vote uh, until there was a constitutional amendment passed a uh, hundred years to to, to do th- To do so. Just to correct you, women earned the right to vote. I would say women not given po- the
0: right to vote. <laughs> women
1: took political po- took political action okay. to 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 gain it. Right. right. I mean, the, the 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 women's suffrage movement was one of the most effective political movements. Um, in history. There's actually a, a wonderful um, paper by, I believe, Corinne McConaughey, or a book by Corinne McConaughey, where she uh, she looked at um, women's political action immediately after gaining suffrage. And she actually found that women in states that received suffrage before the 19th Amendment were actually more effective than men at getting what they wanted done because they, had, they were so well organized. They had to organize mm. in order to get suffrage. And so these, these um, kind of women's organizations in the first generation or so after earning the right to vote, were the most effective political actors in the country, hmm. and, um, and and I, I think that there's a very strong argument that um, African American uh, African American organizations after the Civil Rights Movement and to some degree to to today are incredibly effective in mobilizing uh, their members uh, uh, to vote. But the, the the reality is that there's no there's no right to vote in the Constitution. There are there are ways you cannot prohibit the right to vote. You cannot prohibit the right to vote based on gender. You cannot prohibit it based on race. You cannot prohibit it based on age uh, over the age of 18. Um, but besides that, uh, you know, there's there's quite a lot of uh, restrictions that states are allowed to place on, on the right to vote, which means that there's you know, wildly different voting environments in different states. In some states, if you want an absentee ballot, if you want to, to, to mail in your ballot uh, from an absentee, you, in some states, you have to get a doctor's note. To do so. I believe South Carolina still requires wow. a note from a doctor saying this person is unable to get to a polling place. That's crazy. In other states, every you know, every single person has mailed a ballot and they said, hey, if you want to show up in person to vote, you can do that, or you can just mail this ballot back to us. Up until very recently, most of those controversies, specifically around mail in voting, were nonpartisan. They were nonpartisan because there was essentially no real partisan effect um, to either of these. There have been many studies by political scientists that have shown that. Uh, male voting didn't really have a partisan bias. It had a bias had a very small pro-Republican bias because older people were more likely to vote uh, 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 to vote Republican. This is why some states like Utah and Florida were actually trendsetters in the male voting space. But what happened during COVID is, is that you had kind of two things happen. One is you had uh, a lot of states adopt male voting as a pandemic procedure. It makes sense, but let's not put everybody in the same room together in the middle of an outbreak. I mean, sure. I think that, that, that was pretty, pretty normal. And then you had Donald Trump come out and preemptively call foul on that, by preemptively say, no, no, this is an illegitimate procedure, and male voting is, is, is illegitimate. Now, he probably did this because he thought he was going to lose, and he wanted something to say in, in, in case he was going to lose. But its effect was to build in a new partisan bias to male voting. So by the time the November election came around, you took a system that used to be very universal, very, very nonpartisan. And um, all of a sudden, you had Democrats wanting to vote by mail and Republicans not wanting to vote by mail because they're taking that, their cues from Donald Trump, both sides, um, which meant that there were huge disparities in mail voting. And mail voting probably, uh, or, or at least may have come close to essentially winning the election for Democrats, specifically because you, had, you, you might have had a little bit lower turnout in some states among Republicans. And so the biggest kind of voter suppression or kind of uh, renewed voter restrictions uh, that we've seen come out of this election had been Republican legislatures, essentially severely limiting male voting, including for example, Florida. Florida had probably the most modern voting system in the country, the the best voting system in the country on a lot of accounts um, because they were so embarrassed 30 years ago after the 2000 election. They established a great voting system and the Florida legislature took this voting system, which probably had a slight Republican bias in a state with a lot of Republican retirees in it, and uh, have severely limited mail voting in, in that state. At the same time, the number of, uh, of liberal states, Democratic states, have done the opposite. They've expanded voting uh, above and beyond the kind of the emergency pandemic procedures. Uh, and um, and now, are, now a lot of states like New Jersey are going to have essentially this modern mail everybody a ballot version of mail voting. Just as a, you know, there's probably doesn't need to be said, but there's no evidence to suggest that mail voting is more likely to result in fraud or uh, or really any problems. Um, It increases turnout. We know that um, especially for elections that are kind of low salient elections right now, California. What do you mean by that? Sure, A salient election is one that people care about a lot. And so a presidential election is high salience because everybody cares about the presidential election. To some extent, a midterm election is kind of high salience, but you know, not super high salience. Not everybody votes in the midterm election. There's a lot of people only vote in presidential elections. We have a lot of other elections in this country. Uh, we, we vote for school board, we vote, uh, we vote for runoff elections, we vote for special elections. Um, we, we, vote all the time. We vote more than in any other country in the world. There's, a, there's an old saying that if it's Tuesday in America, somebody is voting somewhere unless it's Christmas. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, and I think you're going to see this coming up soon in California. So California right now is about to undergo, what's called a recall election. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope it, to have a special podcast episode on the recall election coming up soon. And one thing to look out for is the last time California had a recall election was a very low turnout election. You had to be really angry and really, really, really attentive to uh, to get you know, to bother to go out and vote in that election. Well, this election, uh, you got a lot of people who might not even know that there's an election going on. They're going to get a ballot mail to them, and uh, I, I suspect you're going to have a fairly high turnout election there, and that might prevent a, uh, a, a weird outcome. Uh, I'm
0: actually I'm actually ta- uh, working with some folks in California on a research project, and they've actually said the opposite that they're really? worried that not not that that. They're worried that Democrats will be low turnout voters, even getting the mailed in ballot because they're just not like this couldn't possibly go wrong kind of thing. Right. <laughs> and they're worried that something will go terribly wrong.
1: Yeah. And it could be. You know, that's the great thing about new data is that we don't know what the what the result is going to be. I, I would probably bet on on this being a higher turnout election than the last recall the way I probably I probably okay. say it um, we'll see how high that is and we'll see if there's a partisan differential but Do you happen uh, to know
0: do you happen to know off the top of your head what the turnout was in the last recall in the last I, recall is when um, how Arnold Schwarzenegger became yeah, governor of California.
1: Arnold Schwarzenegger and 150 other candidates uh, were on the ballot uh, against Gray Davis, who was, the, who was the, the, the governor of California at the time. And California was was going going through some some real nasty um, governing issues at the time. There was a real debt crisis going on in California. Yeah. And the, the vote was, yes, we, we want to recall Gray Davis and then pick one of 150 candidates Whoever gets the most vote wins. And uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was an easy name to pick off of that list. And um, do you know what percentage of
0: the 150 he got?
1: Uh, it wasn't that high, but it wasn't, it wasn't absurdly low either. I mean, if you ever look at that ballot, there's a lot of names on there that nobody, uh, nobody was going to vote for. Um, I'm looking up the California recall election okay. turnout. I, don't right get, I mean,
0: I don't want to get too far off talking about the recall, but th- this was one thing that I was incredulous about, that if Gray Davis needs 50% plus one to say, don't recall him, right? So that's the other thing, Correct. too. If you want Gray Davis, you have to vote no, which yes. is counterintuitive. But he, so he needs 50% plus one to say, no, don't recall him. But if he gets 50% minus one, then... Somebody who gets 10% of the vote, if that's the highest amount of any of the challengers, they get to be governor.
1: That's correct. And that's um, insane. Yeah, you know, it, it's not a great system. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, these are systems that were born out of what was called the progressive era. Uh, so way back in the in the early 1900s. Uh, there was um, a very different political environment it was a political environment largely controlled by political parties and very corrupt political parties the there was machine. a lot of machine politics basically people you know giving away government jobs and essentially stealing from the public in order to maintain political parties so it's actually a very high turnout period because political parties had tons of people working for them uh, full-time to get to get people out and those people were paid for by public tax dollars and so this was one of the the uh, one of the reforms that many states put in place, uh, including, for example, our neighbor, Wisconsin, to uh, to kind of curtail the power of political parties, that if political parties put some party boss who was corrupt in power, you could have a recall election against them. I think this is one of those reforms that hasn't held up particularly well with, with the test of time, um, in part because of this turnout problem, right? In part because uh, you end up with a, a relatively small and kind of angry and attentive uh, set of people who are going to be showing up for election day. I mean. Let's be honest. No Republican would ever win a general election in California. Right. A normal general election where uh, you know you are two candidates going off, facing off against each other, and you had relatively high turnout. Um, but it's very possible that not just a, a kind of a moderate celebrity Arnold Schwarzenegger type could um, uh, could could be the governor of California two months from now. But you could have a real kind of you know Trumpist Republican in there, which is not representative of the state and will cause problems politically if if, uh, if that happens I think the I think the important part of this conversation though is that the voting system matters it matters how you, it matters that everybody gets a mail ballot in California that's going to affect turnout it sure. might it might help Republicans it might help Democrats we don't really know um, but it's a very different environment than if you had everybody having to show up um, it's a very different environment if you had to request an absentee request an absentee ballot rather than one being automatically mailed to you and what happened during the 2020 election is that I think there were misguided but real beliefs built into specifically Republican officeholders about why they think they lost. They think they lost because of the political institutions making it hard for them to win. Um, I would not be shocked if <laughs> sorry yeah you know, I, I, I'm, I'm
0: thinking about the electoral college. I'm thinking about, you know,
1: all these things that are, Really, Republicans only need about 46% of the vote or so to control the House, the Senate, and the presidency at the moment, given where congressional districts are drawn, given the makeup of the Senate, given the Electoral College. That's not a permanent thing. Barack Obama had actually a a fairly large Electoral College advantage when he ran for president twice. Um, uh, John Kerry almost pulled off a huge upset in 2004, where he was 50,000 votes in Ohio away from losing the popular vote by quite a lot and winning the presidency. Um, so this is not anything unique to the Republican Party right now, but I think on something like mail-in balloting, I actually think they might be wrong about this. I think there's a pretty good chance that as their coalition ages, as the baby boomers get to the point where they are, they struggle to physically get to the polls, that turning away from mail ballots might actually have the the opposite effect that a lot of these legislatures are, are, are expecting.
0: Okay, well, so if it were just about mail-in voting, So again, there is no evidence that mail-in voting is associated with large scale fraud, et cetera. But it's not just mail-in voting that is being curtailed in, in some of these bills, right? Some it's restricting Sunday voting, early voting, because that's when historically African-American churches have mobilized their voters to the polls, right? Uh, Souls to the polls, it's called. They're limiting dropping off ballots or voter ID laws and not being able to give water to people who are standing in ridiculously long lines that are caused by shutting down polling places in, in districts that are, you know, very populated so is is what is the justification for these kinds of of rules right so it it's not it can't if, if the justification even incorrectly is something is is untoward about mail in voting that we need to address that doesn't explain all these other laws or other parts of these laws. So so what is the justification that's being used for some of these other
1: provisions? So the justification that is being used is voter fraud, right? We're gonna, we're going to, or some of it's voter fraud, some of it's just kind of, you know, we're trying to make it easier on election administration. So the when when you ask some of these legislatures about uh, why they're cutting down early voting days? They might reply, you know, a, 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 and say, "Hey, we're we're trying to make it easier on the the people that we're paying to to administer these elections. They can't they can't uh, show up this many days uh, in order to to uh, to to do our early voting." That, that's not that's that's not true, right? That that is that is clearly an excuse. But
0: also, um, aren't aren't some of these laws trying to strip power away from the very people who are paid to administer elections and give that give a lot of and we could go into more detail about what these things are, but 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 basically putting more power in the hands of elected officials rather than the professionals who who actually are hired. So so to say we're we're trying to make it easier on the elected officials who we're stripping of power seems somewhat
1: disingenuous. It is. Um, and so let's just back up. So after okay. the 2020 election, uh, there uh, Donald Trump uh, tries to get local. Local Republicans, local elections officials who you've never heard of, who are working at you know their county elections board, to not certify the results of the election. Specifically in some places like Michigan, where you had to have uh, some of these local boards with, with an even number of Republicans and Democrats vote up a vote 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 a result um, a vote on a result in order to in order to certify it. He tried to intervene there to get to get some of those local officials to not certify the results. He then tried to after that failed. He then tried to uh, convince local legislatures, state legislatures, uh, to essentially overturn the results, to give the, the slate of electors to him rather than uh, who, who people voted for. There's been some movement in laws. Some of this has been a little bit overblown in the news, but there's been some movement in laws to kind of uh, make that a little bit easier for legislators. The reality is, is that if a, if a Republican-controlled state legislature, which has the authority to pass laws, meaning that there's not a governor there to veto it, wants to... Just not hold an election they can do it constitutionally um they they can do it after the 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 the, the, the elections is, is held that's just that's just the the reality of the constitution that that there, there's there's nothing that says we have to have a popular vote in a state for for a uh, for for a president okay sorry um, that, let, let, let me clear ask
0: a clarifying question
1: because i'm not sure if i understood you so
0: after a vote has taken place, the legislature can pass a law saying we don't care what the vote said, or they can say before the election we're not going to have an election.
1: So this would likely end up in court, and we don't know what the courts would say. I would hope the courts would say this is an ex post facto law uh, that if you passed a law after the election to say to overturn to overturn the results, what some of the laws that have been um, proposed by by some state legislatures, and most of these. Have actually not been passed. They've been pulled back before they've been passed. Specifically in Texas, um, one one of these clauses was, was pulled out. Uh, some of those clauses would make it easier for for essentially would essentially plant the seed for for the state legislature to do that afterwards. Where if they have any any concern, they could vote it uh, they, they they could vote vote away the result. Right now, I don't believe any swing states have passed that provision. Some of these swing states have Democratic governors, which is why they haven't passed the provision. Um, what about Georgia? So Georgia was the initial package that Georgia uh, proposed had a lot of really bad stuff in it, um, including, for example, limiting Sunday voting, like you mentioned, um, severe curtailment of early voting, um, some other stuff, uh, and had, had a way to, uh, to remove, to, to change the votes. A lot of that was pulled out of the bill before, uh, before it finally passed. One thing they did do is take away some of the authority of their secretary of state uh, to do some stuff um, related to absentee ballots. Um, in fact, that's what that's a fair, been a fairly common move by Republican legislatures because, um, in their version of the story, the sometimes Democrats sometimes Republican secretaries of states uh, who administer elections in states, state secretaries of states, they, their primary That's in is Illinois. To, it, it, <laughs> uh, the um, the it, it's a it's a weird title because it sounds like you're the the foreign diplomat right. of, the, <laughs> of the state when in reality you're you're, uh, you're certifying elections and you're uh, you're managing state and corporation laws. But yeah, so there was some there was some action there. I think a lot of this is a little bit overblown. A lot of those 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 worst provisions did not uh, make it into law. But I thought there I mean
0: again, I don't this is not my bailiwick here, but I thought that there were steps being taken now in Georgia to remove some of the authority of the top election administrator in Fulton County, Georgia. So not from the Secretary of State, but from a county
1: Maybe. I'm not an administrator. Uh, I just okay. don't, I don't know I,
0: we should that look I that up. Everybody look yeah. that up and see what, see what's happening. Okay, go ahead.
1: Sorry. Uh, well, the, the other thing to, to keep an eye on is in Arizona. So in Arizona, after the, the election uh, was held, um, Republicans were very angry that they lost. And the legislature ordered an audit of uh, Maricopa County, which is by far the largest county in, in Arizona. It's where Phoenix uh, it's where phoenix is in the phoenix suburbs uh it's the majority of arizona it is located in maricopa county controlled by the democratic party um now there was a normal audit uh that was a a, you know, a non-partisan audit that both parties were were, were able to, to witness uh that was done on on on, on um uh, on those votes they found no serious irregularities uh but the senate um the 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 arizona senate commissioned a uh, a a firm called Cyber Ninjas, yes. which is a Florida-based, a florida based, I'm just going to say Republican hack firm okay. that um, is, has been over the last uh, six months or so uh, been performing what can only be described as a kangaroo audit on uh, on those votes. Uh, very soon in the next week or two, they will be coming out with a report uh, which almost surely will find, will claim some evidence of fraud that is not credible. Um, this uh, this entire uh, audit has been, has generated headlines for about six months now about how amateurish it is. So at one point, for, for example, they were scanning ballots to look for traces of bamboo. Yes. Um, because the, the theory was, was that uh, there would be, uh, that if there were Chinese ballots, that they might have traces of bamboo on them. That's which so is,
0: ridiculous. It's ridiculous. and racist. Of, it's racist.
1: It's racist. It's also just dumb. I mean, like, they don't make paper out of bamboo in China. They use, They use wood. Like they use one pulp, like we use for paper here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's done in many ways. And uh, I suspect you're going to see some other states probably commission cyber ninjas to do something very similar uh, uh, to their ballots, um, especially states that Republicans control. And, and I think this is, the idea is to cast doubt on the results of the election. And, and I, I worry that the idea is to uh, set up a justification for overturning the results of the 2024 election. So here's here's a question I have about this. So do
0: all of these elected officials who are claiming fraud and that somehow Biden is illegitimate and Trump really should be the president. Does that mean that their elections are suspect as well and that maybe they no. are not the duly elected Sir, uh, representatives and senators and governors and their
1: official theory of the case is that Democrats decided to fake the presidential election but not all of the other elections where they got creeped, right? Democrats lost seats in, in, in the house. They barely, barely took the Senate and they lost some close races in the Senate that they, 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 they wish they hadn't lost. Um, they're, they're not holding a lot of state legislatures right now. Um, their official position is that a lot of Republican controlled uh, Republican secretaries of states and Republican counties and Republican you know, you know, elections officials participated in this. Um, it, is, it is on its face absurd. Uh, it's dangerous and, So the democrats um, are
0: evil so the according to this the democrats are evil but also stupid
1: exactly right because I, I,
0: they I, wanted to make sure biden won but didn't want to give themselves like super majorities anywhere or even breathing room to be able to do what they wanted
1: I mean, Donald Trump before the Iowa caucus in 2016, when he lost the Iowa caucus in 2016, said, hey, there was fraud that I lost because there was fraud. Then he won a bunch of primaries, didn't say anything. And then before the 2016 election, he said, if I lose, it will be because because there was fraud. Then he won, so therefore he said there wasn't fraud. Uh, well, there right. wasn't fraud. And yeah. then in 2020, before the election, he said, yep. there's going to be fraud in this election. And if I lose, it's because there is fraud. And then he lost. In none of these cases, has there been any evidence of fraud. In all of these cases, Republican Supreme Court justices have sided with people who, who, who in, in court who've said there is no evidence of fraud. If you believe that the three Republican Supreme Court justices that Donald Trump appointed are in on it, I don't know what to tell you right Right. that is just patently absurd um and um and and I think we all know what's going on here this isn't a mystery right this is Donald Trump's plan to not lose and it failed um and uh he's going to try again in a couple of years and we'll see if it fails that time well let's uh put a pin in
0: this one we'll we'll come back to this topic and uh 2024 hopefully we're all still around and able to broadcast freely but let's take a break you're listening to the politics classroom and we'll be right back Okay, welcome back to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros. You can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros if you would like to ask questions that we will answer on future podcasts. In the classroom with me today is Professor E.J. Fagan of the UIC Political Science Department, and we are talking about voting rights. So we've talked about several states and the laws they're trying, or in some cases have successfully passed to limit mail-in voting and place other restrictions um, on voting rights. And I want to talk about Texas in particular. So there was a bill going through the Texas legislature that, so Texas is already the hardest place in the country to vote given the parameters that they have placed on voting and according to detractors of the bill this this new bill would severely hamper even more so uh the right to vote in texas and during the regular session of the texas legislature texas democratic uh lawmakers were able to prevent the passage of this bill by kind of walking out surreptitiously and then when it came to when it came time for the vote, there wasn't a quorum, and therefore the vote could not be held. So I'm going to ask you about quorum in just a minute. But almost immediately after uh, the session expired, the governor, Governor Abbott, called a new session to take up what are supposed to be emergency issues, but included this voter. Suppression bill. I don't know. Some people are calling it the suppression session. I think that's, I think that's a fair a okay. fair characterization. Of the bill. Okay. And so the Democrats who are a minority in the Texas legislature, a large number of Texas Democrats in the house, Texas house, fled the state on July 12th and decamped to Washington, D.C., where they spent some time lobbying the national, you know, US Congress to pass legislation, which we will also talk about in a minute, that would basically either undo or not allow what it is that Texas is, is trying to do. This flight from the from the state lasted for 38 days. On Thursday, August 19th, folks broke the boycott. And now it looks like that quorum can be reached in order to pass these laws. So first of all, briefly, can you, can you explain to me what, the, what this procedure, sure. this whole quorum and if you're not physically there, they can, nothing can happen?
1: Sure, so a quorum requirement is the number of members of a legislature who are required to be present in order for the legislature to do business. Um, so in some legislatures, like the United States Congress, that's just a majority. So if you have 100 senators, you need to have 50 senators present in order uh, to do, or 51 senators uh, present in order to do business, or 50 plus a tiebreaker. In many states, though, there's a supermajority requirement. That is, it is more than 50%, which means that uh, you, need, you might need 60% or 65% of, of, the, of the members present in order to do business. I believe in Texas, it's two-thirds. Uh, That means that if the minority party, which does not have a majority, wants to walk out, uh, they have the power to stop any business being done in that legislature. For this reason, many of these states that have these quorum requirements also give the legislature the authority to compel that people who are elected to the legislature attend, that they show up. And so if you want to, and this is common in in many states, Oregon, for instance, um, the Republican minority in Oregon uses this, this strategy all the time. If you want to uh, prevent any business t- from being done to, to essentially not allow any, any law to be passed, what you have to do, what you can do is you can leave the state. Texas can't arrest you if you're in another state. You probably want to go to a state that has law enforcement that uh, won't uh, arrest you. So probably not to maybe an ally state uh, 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 of that state. So a whole bunch of uh, first uh, Texas senators, uh, state senators, and then Texas state representatives left the state. They went to Washington, D.C., and they uh, they just hung out there for a while. Now, this is obviously a strategy that is doomed to fail, because you have to go home, especially in a state like Texas, which has a non-professional legislature. That means that the legislature only meets in Texas for six months, or really for about five and a half months, uh, every other year. And so the uh, year, every other year. So members, they don't take a big salary. They have jobs, they have lives, they have kids, right? They, they, they can't just pack up and leave and then hang out. You know, the whole, the whole Democratic Party of Texas can't just hang out in DC for a year and a half. right? Um, so this was always a stunt, right? Which is you know the way that many political actions work. It's, it's, it's similar to what you might think of a protest. They were trying to gain support from federal, from, from, from federal legislators, from national media for um, this kind of anti-voting rights uh, or to, to oppose this anti-voting rights. Bill that Texas was, was, was passing. It's similar to what we're gonna talk about later, which is a filibuster, but it's actually much stronger than a filibuster. There's a constitutional requirement that prevents this from happening. In Oregon, um, every time there is a, 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 a anti-gun rights bill or a, a bill intended to, uh, to, to, uh, to make it more difficult to own a gun, the entire Republican party of, of Oregon camps out and, and drives to Iowa, uh, Idaho for, for, for a couple of days. And then they negotiate some sort of settlement and they come back. Normally what happens is majority parties like hold out, hold some legislation that the minority really wants until they vote on everything else. So you would wait to vote on the budget of Texas or the, you know, the, you, you would wait to, you know, to give money to Texas schools until you pass all the stuff that the minority doesn't want. They didn't do that. They made a strategic mistake in Texas. And so they were uh, the, the minority uh, party, the Democratic Party in this case, was able to essentially, at the very end of the, of the of the of the of the session, camp up and go and and, and prevent anything else from being from being uh, from being uh, blocked for anything else from being passed. But that, that ended after 38 days because it was going to end, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the Texas legislature does only meet you know for six months um, every uh, every other year, but they have the ability to call what 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 those call an emergency session in order to. Pass anything else, and they had ten agenda items, uh, everything from uh, reforming Texas's power uh, power grid system to some anti-abortion laws to voting right uh, to some anti-voting rights uh, laws. So they, they ended up voting on quite a few things, and uh, eventually, you know, Democrats lost that fight.
0: So let's talk about what they did when they were in Washington. They went and talked to fo- members of Congress about what was what was what. Texas Republicans were trying to do, and they were lobbying for the Congress to pass two different bills. One is the John Wright's, I'm sorry, John Lewis restoration of- The Voting Rights Act. Voting Rights Act. And then there's this For the People Act. So, I mean, we don't have, you know, forever, but I do wanna just talk briefly about what each of these bills does because they're they're very different, right? So the John Lewis Voting Rights Act was written because the Supreme Court made a decision in 2013. Okay, this is why this is the classroom sure. because we have to explain all yeah. the details, right? So the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act was passed 1965 and one of the provisions, section five, made it such that parts of the country that had historically suppressed the rights of african-americans to vote that if those jurisdictions wanted to change voting laws the federal government had to approve those changes so that was called pre-clearance and since the voting rights act in 1965 the voting rights act has been
1: has been reauthorized
0: but In 2013, a case went before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decided that, in a 5-4 decision, I'm pretty sure, that basically because people's rights weren't being taken away, racism has been solved and we don't need these these specific places figuring out who needed this pre-clearance was out of date because racism is solved. And so now n- nobody has to get their laws pre-cleared before they make them, which was immediately followed by a whole bunch of states passing a whole bunch of le- uh, voter suppression legislation that they had previously not been able to pass. And so the, the, the John Lewis bill is supposed to what? What?
1: Restore preclearance
0: basically. For everybody, um, though.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so, Make it universal. Yes. So, um, the, the argument by the Supreme Court was that, uh, they, they they decided that Congress's intent only about 10 years earlier when they reauthorized the law, uh, was to, uh, was to solve the problem of, of Jim Crow, of, 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 of Jim Crow disenfranchising African Americans in the South. And therefore that wasn't a problem anymore because the law was so successful. So therefore that that, that, that provision of law is no longer in case. They actually kept in some other stuff. Sure. Um, so there's some other you know, fairly powerful stuff in the, in a vo- in the Voting Rights Act that's still in there. And uh, you know, Democrats could just repass that law. Uh, but the concern is, is that the, the court would be able to kind of come up with a constitutional justification to to, to to eliminate it again. So they said, okay, we're going to expand it to all 50 states. That if all 50 states want to do something that that might restrict the right to vote, uh, they need pre-clearance from the from the federal government. So as long as Democrats held the federal held um the Justice Department held held the presidency, uh, they can essentially prevent, for example, Texas passing a, a law which would um, criminalize uh, uh, certain certain things related to voting.
0: So does that mean that when
1: Republicans held, the
0: Justice Department, or the Presidency, therefore the Executive, therefore the yeah. Justice Department, that they allowed discriminatory legislation to get through, or has historically been a good bulwark against voter suppression.
1: It's historically been a good bulwark against voter suppression. Um, for one thing, I think the careerists in the, in the Justice Department are involved in that decision-making process. But you know, the Bush administration, you know, even even you know the uh, the Reagan administration, they were. Um, they were basically on board with the Voting Voting Rights Act. I mean, both Bush and Reagan pushed to renew the Voting Rights Act. Um, In fact, uh, during the Reagan administration, it was John Roberts, who's now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who was working in the Reagan White House, who argued against reauthorizing it. And, and so, you know, this this is a this was a, a real commitment by both parties for a very long time. You know, the, the thing about the Voting Rights Act is it passed with broad bipartisan majorities, and the majority of, of strong opposition to it were Democrats, because there were Southern Democrats right, at the time. Right. Yes. Um, so this, this is a relatively new development that the, the Republican Party has become strongly anti-voting rights. And you're right that after, after Shelby Counter versus Holder, which is the Supreme Court case, we've just seen just, just law after law restricting the right to vote in the South in, in, in ways targeted at African-Americans, trying to get harder for African-Americans to vote. When pressed in court, they will tell you, we are not trying to make it harder for African-Americans to vote. We're trying to make it harder for Democrats to vote. (laughs) that's legal. That is legal according to them, right? I mean, there's a, you know, I I would say this is still a live issue in some cases, you know, in, in the courts, but there is no constitutional right to vote. And so, um, you know, the, the, they're arguing that they're they're not violating the Voting Rights Act because they're just they're just trying to derive a partisan advantage, just like when the Illinois Democrats gerrymander the heck out of Illinois, which they're going to do fairly soon. Sure. Um, that you know they're doing it for partisan reasons, not for for any other any any other reasons.
0: Okay, so I'm sorry, we're running out of time, and and I definitely want to mm-hmm. get to the filibuster, but I also want to talk about the For the People Act. Sure. Which is very expansive. I think it's more expansive than people think it is. It includes things like getting dark money out of politics, right? So you have to declare who is donating. And and there are some campaigns that have to donate, but then there are these super PACs that who knows who's giving money to that, right? There are also things in there about what now I'm blanking.
1: Uh, So guaranteed days of early voting in every state, guaranteed mail-in balloting in every state, um, and and the, the biggest provision in there is uh, requiring that every state use a non- nonpartisan redistricting commission when drawing districts. That's right. Okay. Um, and, uh, and it's a fairly strong provision they have in there that, that, would, that would establish true nonpartisan committees uh, in, in, in order to do so. It's 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 the wish list. It's basically every every idea Democrats have, they put into one bill that they knew what they probably weren't going to be able to pass. All right. Um, there's now a version of that bill that has been approved by Joe Manchin, who is the uh, essentially the swing vote, the most conservative Democrat uh, in the Senate from West Virginia.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, which is it contains a lot of stuff in there, including the the the, the nonpartisan um, redistricting commission, but eliminates a lot of kind of the the. Um, which I think some people might fairly be able to argue, I don't don't think I agree with them, but fairly be able to argue is an infringement on states' rights to administer their elections, right? So the idea of saying you must have X days of early voting, you must have this type of mail-in ballot, et cetera. uh, A lot of that's probably been stripped out of the the version that if it advances, we'll advance. But the big stuff, the most important thing in there is the nonpartisan redistricting commission, which would really change politics in many states.
0: I think, okay, well, maybe we'll have you back for more of a conversation. So Democrats have a very slim majority in the House, three votes, but they have already passed the both of the, no, not the John Lewis, that that just became like actual text. The um,
1: the, the For the People Act, HR1. The, the
0: For the People Act. The Democrats only hold the majority in the Senate because it's 50-50. Well, it's not 50-50, but the two independents caucus with the Democrats. So that gives them 50. The Republicans have 50 but the rules of the senate say that the vice president can break any ties and since the vice president is a democrat the democrats have the majority but there is this rule in the senate not in the constitution but in senate rules known as the filibuster which requires 60 votes for debate to end on any particular bill And so if you wanna block a bill, you just don't vote to, it's called cloture, right, to end the debate. And so this has been used historically to block civil rights legislation. It's been used to block a lot of things, but there is no filibuster on budget bills. There's no filibuster on nominations, including Supreme Court nominations. So why is there still a filibuster on everything else? Why doesn't the majority party get to pass the laws that it wants? What are the downsides of getting rid of the filibuster? And why are conservative Democrats holding on so tightly in five minutes? Go.
1: All right, in five minutes. (laughs) Filibuster is a rule um, that a majority of senators support. So uh, the Senate can pass any law it wants, can pass any rules it wants with just 50 votes plus one tiebreaker, which Democrats have right now. Up until about the 1978 or so, I forget exactly the year, this applied to all laws. Any law you wanted to pass, you had to get you had to get cloture. At one point, uh, it could literally be anybody could continue continue talking, and they they could they could hold the floor. That was brought in the uh, right before World War I uh, because uh, a small group of senators were blocking uh, American funding uh, for for the war, uh, for for World War I. Uh, That was reduced to 66 votes. So if if two-thirds of the chamber said we want to move on, we want to vote on this bill, uh, then we can vote on the bill. um, That was further reduced uh, to 60 votes, which is where it is today. And uh, car- and then after that, we started kind of carving out exceptions. So the first exception we carved out was for budget bills, because it was really hard to pass a budget. The Senate wasn't passing its budgets on time. And so a senator from West Virginia named Robert Byrd said, we're uh, uh, creating a rule uh, which is written into, into the, the, the rules of the Senate that said that if it's a budget related bill that's not related to Social Security, big exception there, okay. um, 50, 50 votes can advance the bill and you can vote on it. Uh, So that exception was carved out there, and that exception has kind of grown a little bit as we've kind of added more things to what might be considered a budget bill over time. Um, Now it's basically anything the Senate parliamentarian thinks might have substantial revenue or spending implication. So anything you're spending money on anything that's gaining a lot of revenue. So right now, for instance, uh, Bernie Sanders is attempting to get immigration reform included in uh, under budget reconciliation, reconciliation instructions on the correct argument that bring a lot of revenue by letting a lot of new, high-skilled immigrants in. Um, uh, By some some estimates, hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue per year, you can increase, you can get fairly quickly uh, by expanding uh, legal immigration because you have more people working, more people paying taxes. The other exception is nominations. So uh, back during the Obama administration, Barack Obama had put a bunch of nominees out, a lot of nominees basically we're getting a vote. No, the, 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 the Republican minority in the Senate said, "We no matter who you nominate for a couple of these positions, this was the National Labor Relations Board and the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They said, no matter who you nominate, we're not gonna vote on them. You know, and no matter what we say, they all eventually said that for a bunch of judges as well. Barack Obama said, uh, uh, or the, 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 the uh, Democrats in the Senate, I tried to convince them to let up, but at the end of 2012, they decided, nope, we're going to, to the end of 2013, no, we're going to change this and we're going to eliminate that for nominations. So we've carved out another exception. What is happening right now is one, most of the major democratic policy proposals can be done through reconciliation. That is their budget stuff, their taxing and spending stuff. We're going to tax some money. uh, We're going to raise taxes on rich people and we're going to spend that on a child tax credit and uh, long-term care and $1,400 checks and infrastructure and a lot of this kind of stuff and climate change and anything you're spending money on Democrats are putting it there. But voting rights is not one of those things. Um, so they have this voting rights bill, uh, this amended version of the voting rights bill that they have 50 senators who support. 50 senators say we want we want this bill to be passed into law. And what right now they are discussing and may or may we don't know what side of this discussion they're going they're going to end up on is whether or not we want another exception carved out for voting rights. So there's an exception for budget stuff. There's an exception for nominations. The Republicans added uh, an, an, another exception. So there was a the Democrats did not add in an exception for Supreme Court nominations. The Republicans said, no, we're going to add in a Supreme Court nominations exception. And now Democrats are saying maybe we can add in another one. This is the slow death of the filibuster, right? This, this is the you, people want the filibuster to kind of go out in a bang where they they vote to say no more filibuster. That seems unlikely. What seems much more likely is a fairly similar thing that happened in the House of Representatives about 120 years ago. Where rule by rule, piece by piece, you dismantle the supermajority requirement, and that's what's happening right now. Basically, I don't know if they'll do it. I don't really have a prediction here, but you know they're talking about it, right? Joe Manchin made some bargains to get this bill reduced, right? If Democrats wanted a bill that wasn't going to pass but was going to be good symbolic politics, they wouldn't have agreed to reintroduce the Foreign People Act with the stuff without the stuff Joe Manchin doesn't like. Um, so I, I suspect that they're discussing this. Again, I don't know if they'll actually pull the trigger. Um, I don't know if the recent news in Afghanistan has kind of soured some Democrats on the idea of being really ambitious legislators. <laughs> but um, it's certainly something they're discussing. And I wouldn't be shocked either way. I wouldn't be shocked if nothing happens in the voting rights. I wouldn't be shocked if the de- Democrats carve out an exception for voting rights in the filibuster and pass a you know, fairly ambitious uh, voting rights bill.
0: I would actually be shocked by that if they actually carve it out really quickly what is the downside? What are the arguments against getting rid of the filibuster, either the carve out or just wholesale?
1: I think that so from the Republicans perspective, the filibuster prevents a Democrat majority from establishing a lot of new programs that Republicans don't like. and And so you're seeing right now Democrats use the exceptions they already have in law to do things like uh, like pass a child tax credit because that's a budget thing and they can do that. Democrats have a lot of other stuff they'd like to do. Voting rights is one of them, but you know they they also might like to say uh, make it really really easy to join a union, um, which is a, a, a something that Democrat that Republicans don't like. And and ever since um, essentially polarization's kind of broken down a lot of the lawmaking mechanisms in American politics, um, we haven't seen a lot of new agencies being created. You know the the, the new new you know um, uh, you know domestic regulation of of of, of the economy for Democrats. The downside here is that they eventually won't control government and they have a structural disadvantage in the Senate, which means that Republicans with fairly small majorities or even without a majority would be able to take control of the Senate. And there's a lot of stuff that is built into law right now that, that when, you know, when Republicans controlled to control all three branches of government in 2017, they didn't do, like they didn't eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency. They didn't eliminate the National Labor Relations Bill Board. They didn't, uh, you know, uh, try to uh, gerrymander the Electoral College, right? There's lots of things that you could imagine somebody who could has the power to change laws doing. As a political scientist, I think it's important for parties to be accountable. And right now, I think I I, I think both sides should be making promises in elections. And when they win an election, they should have the chance to carry out their uh, their policy agenda, and if voters don't like it, if voters don't like, you know, Republicans gaining power and eliminating the EPA, I think they should vote them out, and if voters don't like Democrats gaining power and passing a major voting rights bill or whatever, I think they should vote them out, and, um, and, and, and so I find that a lot of these complaints are, I think, are not particularly great arguments. Um, you know, most states don't have filibusters, don't have supermajority requirements. Most countries don't have supermajority requirements. Mm. They're doing just fine, um, this is a weird invention that was not intended. It was an accidental invention in the United States Senate. Um, and as you've mentioned, most of its history has been used to frustrate civil rights laws. Um, there was a point in time where it was, only, it was only really being used for a couple of things, mostly to, to, to prevent um, the, the North from imposing civil rights laws on the South. It wasn't until uh, non-civil rights policy got involved that the Senate actually decided to change its rules, which was again, World War I. If there's something that the Senate wants enough, I think they eliminate the filibuster. Whether or not that's the case this, this session, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think right now the you know, Democrats can do a lot with 50 votes and, and maybe that's that's all I need. They're, they're about to pass major, major policy changes with 50 votes.
0: But if these voting suppression laws go into effect, they might not ever be the majority again.
1: Maybe, um, you know, I, I think we're overstating the, the, these voting rights laws a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, Democrats won the majority under the old system. Some of these laws, like for example in Texas, are criminalizing a very small percentage of activity. So, for example, the Texas law would put some people in jail who, um, essentially, what they what some people derisively call ballot harvesting, which is just normal politics where people would you know help uh, you know a senior citizen you know bring their ballot to a to the uh, to the uh, election administration to, to a drop box criminalizing kind of basic activity like that, it's probably not going to change the results very much. You know, voter ID has been shown by political scientists uh, to essentially have very little net impact on elections, um, in part because it appears to just energize or organize people who who, who are targeted by it. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't have any impact. Um, it doesn't mean it can't have impact if you do it, you know, if, if you do it in, in a particular way. Uh, but for the most part, this is, this is stuff that helps one party or the other on the margins, not, in a really big way. So one exception is partisan gerrymander. If you had partisan, you know, nonpartisan uh, uh, redistricting commissions in every state, um, there'd be a lot of states where Democrats would, uh, would would lose seats, there'd be a lot of states where Republicans would lose seats, but generally speaking, whoever gets the majority of votes in the country would probably win the, election, win, win the House of Representatives. And right now, if Democrats don't win the House of Representatives by four or five points, they're going to lose the majority and, and Republicans will take that majority. Um, for the Senate, you know, this, none of this is impacts the Senate, right? right. You know, the Democratic Party is structurally disadvantaged in the Senate because a lot of big states are Democratic states. A lot of small states are Republican states. And there um, are more small Republican states than there are big Democratic states. By some estimate, estimates, the Republicans have a six to seven point advantage in the Senate, which is just huge. Um, it's why Democrats are the moderate party or the, the more moderate party and Republicans are the more extreme party because Republicans can be and they can still get the majority. This, this bill doesn't, doesn't impact that. And also those, those dynamics can change real quick. If the filibuster
0: goes away, then it would be easier for D.C. and Puerto Rico to become states, though, wouldn't it?
1: That is, that's the other big one, right? <laughs> right I mean, yeah. th- that's in the For the People Act. Ah, and, um, I didn't realize that. Yeah, okay. I forgot to mention that. That's in the for the, the for the People Act. And that's the other thing that would make a big difference because that would essentially give Democrats two easy seats in uh, in D.C. Puerto Rico, Or, you know, uh, well, Puerto Rico... Oh, it is unclear what party would win huh. in Puerto Rico. Interesting. Um, Puerto Rico, one, doesn't have a Republican and Democratic party, um, but they do have parties that are like, associated with the Republican and Democratic parties. But Republicans win statewide in Puerto Rico all the time. Hmm. Uh, the governors of Puerto Rico are very common, which, which is why up until basically 2020, both parties had, had an endorsement for Puerto Rican statehood in their platform every single year. There were different, differently worded, and you know, some kind of you know, were were a little more mealy-mouth than, than than others. But for the most part, every year, both parties, Republican and Democrats, said we support Puerto Rican statehood. And frankly, I don't know what party would win those Senate seats. Hmm. It'd be a weird race. Um, Puerto Rican politics have largely been defined by independence. There's been a pro-independence party and an anti independence party. And if you eliminate that social cleavage within that society, I don't know what happens. It would be a fa- it would be a fascinating state uh, state to watch. And and um, I got, I wouldn't be shocked if if uh, if that's not two free seats for Democrats, but mm. DC, I think you're right, right? DC is clearly a uh, would be a big advantage for Democrats. And frankly, it's it's shocking to me that during the brief period that Democrats had 60 votes, that DC did not become a state in 2009. Mm. It's a- absolutely shocking to me. Somebody who's living in DC at the time, it's one of those things I'm sure Democrats look back on and deeply regret not doing. Mm.
0: All right. Well, I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but we don't have hours and hours and hours. So we're going to leave it there for right now. Thank you so much, Professor E.J. Fagan of the Political Science Department at UIC for talking, and hopefully you will come back soon so we can continue the conversation. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio, which you can find at uicradio.org or on the Radio FX app. I'm Professor Floros. You can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros if you'd like to ask questions that we will address on future shows. Join me next week, but for this week that's all I've got. Class dismissed.